Welcome everybody to the Big No Podcast. I'm your host Pamela Cooley and every week I get to speak to exceptional people doing amazing things. Now the Big No Podcast is about setbacks, adversity and how we change those no's into next opportunities. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce you today with Janelle Aldred. Janelle is a freelance newsreader and author. As a journalist, she has worked with some of the UK's largest organisations such as the BBC, Five News, ITN and ITV. The author of the book, Communicate to Change, Janelle explores how we recognise racial bias and how we use communication as a way to create effective change. So Janelle, welcome to the Big No Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, it's a pleasure. We've only just you know, come into contact quite recently. And I think what I said to you, we're at an event at Ideas Fest, and I said, you've got the most beautiful voice. You should be like on telly, like a newsreader. And you were like, that's what I do. <laughs> I like, yeah, that's what I used to do, and now I do a bit more broadcasting. But yeah, I read the news for 13 years, Yeah. so um, you definitely get very used to your voice yes, and yeah. hearing yourself back, yeah. and so therefore correcting yeah. um, the things that you don't love and, and working on the things that well, you Well, feel free to correct, because I'm one of those people <laughs> who just like, I don't like the sound of my voice, so oh. how do we overcome that? I don't know. Is it something that you just accept, or do you work at it? Or So what I always say to people, and I do like media training, yeah. and I talk to CEOs, and I think that it was really interesting during lockdown, so I did a lot of training on Zoom, mm -hmm. because actually everyone was like, I hate Zoom, I find yeah. it so tiring, but what is actually tiring is looking at yourself. Yeah. It's not actually the camera, because the camera's only doing what would be happening to you in a meeting. Yeah people looking at you yeah, um, and if you're in a meeting and we're all together to me turning off your camera is the equivalent of sitting under the table <laughs> and saying I just find it tiring for people to see me but actually what it is people are not used to seeing themselves yes. constantly yeah. and actually you see the way your face moves you see the way your mouth moves you see the expressions that mm. you make you hear your voice and most people are not used to having that happen to them. Mm. So that was a thing that I think people found that they didn't like about Zoom, which then yeah. turned into something else. But actually, you have to just watch yourself back. And the more you watch yourself back and the more you get used to your voice, yeah. it becomes like not a thing. You, you can just objectively, that was a good performance today, yeah. that wasn't a good performance today. But most people don't enjoy sitting with the uncomfortableness of watching themselves back a lot. So where do you think that uncomfortableness comes from though? Because like, you know, people say like, oh, well, I hardly ever look in the mirror because like, I get changed, but I don't really look at myself. Or do you know, where did that, where do you think that comes from? Do you think it's like a confidence thing? Is it like a societal thing? Is it, where I'm going with this, as a newsreader, broadcaster, yeah. you have to be comfortable within yourself. You may be talking about topics which you find uncomfortable, but you can't portray that in your body language. So how do we overcome that? Where does that stem from, do you think? I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with themselves. And I wrote about this in the book. There's kind of a gap. Mm. There's the way you are, mm -hmm. the way you'd like to think you are, mm -hmm. and the way the world sees you. Mm. And for most people, they don't want the world to see worst of them and that's just very natural yeah. of course we, we want people to like us we want to put our best foot forward yeah. that's why sometimes people dislike being called a racist more than they dislike being racist yeah because actually it's the fact that someone spotted it yeah that's what actually people feel very uncomfortable with it mm. there's a side of them that people have pointed out and said that's not good yeah. that's why people don't like cancel culture if you want to call it that because they've been called out someone spots something they've done and they say no good yeah. and most for most people that's a very rejecting feeling mm. so we have an image of ourselves that we want to project and then you see yourself on the screen and you think that's not the image i want to project mm. you hear your voice and you think that's not the voice i hear in my head yeah. you know people who are some people who are terrible singers you know in their head it sounds good yeah, yeah. and then someone points out and says 
no good. Yeah. But the what makes it hard is the evidence. Yeah. So you see yourself on camera, that's the evidence of whether or not you are matching up to who you believe you are yeah. and who you want the world to believe you are. Yeah. And I think it all stems down to a lot of things, why people don't like public speaking, why people, all those front-facing things. Mm. It's because people think, am I the person I want to be? Mm -hmm. And they fear that if they are short, other people will notice. Mm. And that is, I think, where the uncomfortableness comes from. For some people, that stems from low self-esteem. From some people, it's a lack of confidence. Mm. But from some people, it's just that fear of being found out yeah. to not be what you think you are. Yeah. And so I think that troubles people. That's and so they don't want to step into it. unpack that, though. Because that could even stem back way from, like, childhood, which is, like, where I want to go. Because I think, as an author, I like to start at the beginning of the story. So, little Janelle... How was she as a child? What are the things that influenced you? What kind of motivated you? How, how were you as a child in your childhood? So we were raised in church. Mm -hmm. My dad was a pastor in a Pentecostal church growing up. And that shaped a lot of, I think, how I ended up mm. being how I am. I wouldn't say who I am, but how I am. Because in church, you grow up and it's a black majority church, very affirming space in terms of your blackness mm. and that confidence. There were women leaders, there were male leaders. Mm. So I was in this kind of bubble every weekend and most weeknights where there was not a limit on my potential in that sense. Okay. Or my intelligence was not questioned. My identity wasn't questioned. And so that had a massive impact on mm. me. I can't tell you much about school at that age, but I can tell you about church. Yeah. And in church, I was a very good reader. Mm -hmm. So when I was, before I started school, my sister's five years older than me. So she taught me to read. Mm -hmm. So I was a really good reader. So I would have to stand up, we used to have these big conventions, like 5,000 people, and little Janelle, five-year-old, would be put on a little box to read <laughs> from the Bible yeah. to this massive crowd. And there was never a sense of, oh, well, you can't do it, or, or anything like that. So that shaped me a lot. Yeah. And also in church, because I was a pastor, kind of a bit of a privileged position in that space. Mm. So you get lots of adult conversation, lots of adults talking mm. to you. So you become very front-facing mm -hmm. without realising. Mm -hmm. And I think that shaped a lot of what I went on to do. So in school, I was never afraid to read in front of the class. And lots of, especially young black children who grew up in church around that period, mm. a lot of them are very much like that, very front-facing, because you had to. They say, come on, kids, you know, come to the front, sing a song, mm. <laughs> give a testimony, tell us about your week. And you would just have to do it. Yeah. So from a young age, it was ingrained in you. Mm. Be front-facing yeah. and built to be extroverted. But I think over the years, what I've learned is I'm actually an introverted person, mm -hmm. but these extrovert tendencies were learnt yeah. and put in me from a very young age. Yeah. And so I've just gone on to find a way to live that way. Yeah. Um, but I was a very shy child and I would hide in my mom's skirts afterwards because I didn't want anyone to look at me. Oh. <laughs> so it was like this double whammy of yeah. I'd stand on the stage, I'd read, and then afterwards I'd be in my mom's skirt like, please don't anyone tell me that I did a good job. And I think I'm still a lot like that. I was going to ask you, do you think I'm still, still a lot, lot like, like that. that? Yeah. So let's talk about some of your setbacks. So first, I want to know, how did you get into journalism? Was it something that, you know, you said that, you know, you stood up in church, you were very confident, you know, reading from the Bible. Did you think that kind of sparked that kind of curiosity to be like, get out there and tell the world stories and share your voice with the world? Or was I mean, it something that you kind of fell into accidentally? I fell into it and it was quite easy. And I think that's that's one of the strange things. You know, mm. people say, you know, as a black woman, it's been so hard for you to get into journalism. Actually, it was a hop and a skip. Mm. And I was in and I kind of did some work placements at like a newspaper. 
And then I went to the BBC to talk to one about careers because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And my dad was very frustrated because I'm a middle child too. I was trying everything. <laughs> and so I went to the BBC and someone said, you should be a broadcast journalist. Have you thought about this? I was like, never even heard of the role. And they were like, there's a degree in it. So then I just literally went to the uni, did the degree, went on work experience at the BBC. They told me to apply for a job. I did. I got it. I started. Then an editor said, you should be on screen. And then I was. Mm -hmm. And someone said, you should launch the News Weekend Bulletins. And then I did. But that in and of itself started a different reaction that I didn't expect in terms of colleagues mm. and peers. Mm -hmm. And that was when things got tough. Tell me about that, if you don't mind. So I did my master's degree in broadcast journalism. Then I went digital. And I mean, no one was counting, there were no algorithms, that no one was talking mm. about any of these things. They were just literally, we need a website, things need to be on it. Then someone said, there's a weather job going, it's like a full-time position. I thought, oh, I don't really know if I'm going to do the weather, because I'm trained as a journalist mm -hmm. and, you know, love news. I said, okay, let me take the opportunity, it's a staff job at the BBC. These are things people crave for. And then we had a new editor and, or an acting editor, and he said, you know, some people think you'd be great at launching this weekend bulletin. So when I get that news, I'm really pleased. It's, you know, announced in the newsroom. And I go to a journalist in the newsroom I really respect. And I said, I would love to get some tips from you about mm. how. And he turned to me and he said, Janelle, I don't know. I'm not going to help you with that because I don't think you should be doing that job because there are other people here who've been here longer. And I don't think it's right that a weather presenter is going to be reading the news and I'm going to speak into the union about that. Well, and I just kind of stood there and said, okay, and then I went to the makeup room and like cried my eyes out because all of this had just not occurred to me. Yeah. There would be that depth of feeling and looking around at my colleagues and thinking, gosh, people are talking about this. People are talking about me. Mm -hmm. People are saying that I shouldn't be doing this. Should I be doing this? Mm. And I went to the editor at the time and I said to him, look, maybe I shouldn't do it. And he said, you've got a degree in journalism. You've got a master's degree. And I said, yeah. And he said, so you're perfectly qualified to do mm. it. But I think that started a bit of a chain reaction in me. Yeah. That put something there that wasn't previous, was not previous then. And I remember my tutor said, you know, someone's come to me and said that they think you're getting a bit too big for your boots. And all of these things, and at the time I was 25, young, young, young. Mm. And, you know, prior to that, having had like a stillbirth and all of that turmoil and not having really dealt with that and then getting into this situation mm. where you're in this situation and then we had a different editor and he really wasn't keen on me and then it just all kind of fell apart mm. and I think that had a profound effect on me that carried over into I would say a lot of the jobs I had where when I had promotions when I was given things this would happen yeah and I think as a woman and as a black woman it just became like a reoccurring theme. Mm. So in, to, in the end, where you don't want to be successful and where you don't want to do front-facing things because mm. actually I just thought it's too much act, like why would I want to do it? So my mentor, Cyril, like that's one of the reasons that he kind of was on the scene mm. because I, I couldn't cope. So I came off air at the BBC, went behind the scenes at ITN, went back on telly, came off air again, went to go and work for a charity, I came off air again. Because actually for me, it was just wrapped up in so much pain and happiness. And just, and you know, you're thinking like, why is this happening to me? Like, mm. why, why would people be so cruel yeah. about someone else doing something? Yeah. I get sometimes you want to do things other people are doing. Very human. I get sometimes people are envious. Very human. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, it's not, it's, there's nothing wrong with the feelings. Yeah. But the behaviour of what you choose to do with those feelings means a lot. 
and then also means that because I would never back down mm. in the sense of I'm not I'm not going to back down people don't go away because you don't back down people double down mm. often when you don't back down and then as a black woman there's the whole trope of being like an aggressive black woman and they will make it that you are the person aggressing and doing things yeah. when you spend most of your life reacting reacting to people and reacting to this hostility but then you counter that hostility and then you're the problem because mm. actually there's more of them than there are of you yeah. but the other day having a conversation with a couple of friends and um one of them just pointed it out like really starkly like look you start bad bullying and you don't want to own that for yourself because you don't want to own you don't want to feel like a victim or you don't want to feel like people have had that effect on yeah. you you grow up and people say sticks and stones can break your bones but words will never hurt you words, words hurt you words hurt and people say things like well you know you're better than that and sometimes you wish you did know yeah and sometimes intellectually you know like yeah. intellectually you know it shouldn't bother you intellectually in your head you know this shouldn't be affecting mm. you like this and do you think also there's that almost perception as well being a black woman that like you can handle it yeah it's not that bad you can handle it a hundred percent and because some of these things you can't put your finger on it like that yeah no one's coming to you well besides you know some of those people that did say things cruel things they just freeze you out mm -hmm. how can you counter that just being frozen out how can you counter a whole team just ignoring you when you yeah. say we need to do this how do you counter that so then you go direct you're aggressive you're a bully or there's no evidence you, in the end, you just feel like, well, this is like a battle that becomes very, very hard to mm. fight. Do I even want to fight it? I don't need this. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, why would I want to do this? But then it's really weird because I think there's almost the the shame of it. Mm. And the shame of you thinking, loads of people don't like me. Mm -hmm. And as it comes back to earlier, the way you want to be viewed in the world, yeah. the way you want to be seen, the way you want to see yourself. Yeah. And so it's punching all of these holes in the container of you mm -hmm. and the container of your confidence. And you think, how many times do you want to come back mm. from something like that? Yeah. How many times do you want to put yourself through something like yeah. that? My friend once said, her wife said to her, why should I always seem to like have so much ag? And she said, because she's a strong black woman and she won't turn it down for anyone. That's a blessing and a curse. Mm. And a blessing and a curse. I've never been grateful enough. Mm -hmm. Good. I've deserved all, a lot of yeah. the things, nearly all of the things I've had, I've deserved them because yeah. I've been good enough to do it. Yeah. And I've, I'm good on camera, yeah. I'm good at talking, and I'm good at writing. But what people want you to do is with that, do it in a way that doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. You can't know what brings someone discomfort. Mm -hmm. People said, you know, people find your confidence intimidating. But that's their problem though. You being intimidated <laughs> does not make me an intimidating person. Yeah. And I think so often, when people feel small, all of us, we project that onto the thing that someone else is doing. Mm. Rather than look, there's a gap in me. Yeah. There's a feeling in me mm. that I'm not enough. Mm. And when I see this, it's like a mirror. Yeah. And I don't like it. Yeah. But then we make it about, why is that person always posting about what they're doing on socials? The same reason you're posting why you're doing on socials. <laughs> it's exactly the same yeah. thing, but because you feel that that thing is big yeah. and it makes you feel small, yeah. you don't like it. Yeah. So you're gonna unfollow that person. That's mm -hmm. fine, you can unfollow them. Mm -hmm. and, follow them if you, and follow them if it makes you feel small, sure. But don't make it about what they're doing. Yeah. Because me talking about my job because I'm on telly is the same as someone talking about their job because they work in a shop. But that's more acceptable. Mm. But it's not front-facing and it's not big. Yeah. And I think that's what you're always fighting against. And after a while, I just thought, 
I don't want to do it. Yeah. So during lockdown as well, I know we touched on about this like before we started recording and the whole concept of, you know, long term grief. And I think like collectively we've all whether we've lost somebody during lockdown or or not, grief is something that almost like society thinks that, you know, you have a period, you grieve and then you move on with your life and life continues. And yes, life does continue, but I feel like that grief will always stay with you. And we don't talk enough about how that affects you physically, mentally, emotionally and what we can be doing to kind of, again, it sounds it sounds cheesy, it sounds really easy, like be kind to ourselves, but I think we find it really hard to be kind to ourselves because it almost sounds like it's too easy. It's not going to do anything. So what are your thoughts about the whole grief, long-term grief and and trying to navigate through that? I think lockdown was such a time where grief became a real thing that mm. kind of bubbled up and up. For me, I think actually grief we should deal with it a bit more like we do mental health. Mm. It's something that you live with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you find ways to live with it mm. and you find ways to cope through it mm -hmm. and coping mechanisms and sometimes it will get too much and it will be very intense and sometimes it will be floating around the background and not actually an issue but something that you know because I think anyone who's loved someone deeply mm -hmm. or loved something deeply and they're no longer here mm -hmm. and they're never going to be here again mm to get our minds around that concept mm. when we're often so uncomfortable with death ourselves mm -hmm. and the fact that one day we will no longer be here. Mm. I think most of us struggle with that concept yeah. because it's not like there's someone and they're far away and now you just can't pick up the phone or you know they're gone and they're gonna be back. They're gone, gone. Mm -hmm. And I have found in my experience, you know, I had a stillbirth when I was 19 that the grief turned into almost something else. Mm. It's almost like a grief for yourself, for the life you know you'll never have mm. and the things you know you'll never do. And I think for most people, that's what it turns into. And for some people, it doesn't. But very, very often you see people and they say, you know, they never got over it. No, they didn't. Because they loved that person so mm. deeply that the idea that life goes on without them is troubling. Yeah. And every now and again, because life has these moments, isn't it, where you have your highs and your lows. And when you have those highs and low and low moments, for a lot of people, that's the moment mm. when the grief comes flooding back. Yeah. And if it's a low moment, it can make it lower. And if it's a high moment, it can sometimes take the shine off it. Mm. Because just, I wish so-and-so was here to see this. Yeah. And so for me, I think what I've learned over time is I didn't really deal with it at first because I was young. I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> when you're 19, you don't know what's going on. You think you know everything, but you don't know anything about anything that's going on in your life and in yourself. And then in lockdown, I just found that spending, because I was living by myself, spending so much time by myself, lots of things were just coming up to the surface. Mm. Because in lockdown, and I think this is also the reason why, you know, things like Black Lives Matter took on such a life form. There was nothing else to do. There was nothing else to look at. You mm. could not look away from your life choices because every day you were living in them. Yeah. So whether that's you didn't like your partner, <laughs> now you're in it every single yeah. day, there's nowhere to go. Be that, you know, I wish that I'd settled down with that person. You're now living with that choice of being by yourself, mm. with the choice of maybe the jobs you've had leading to the economic situation you now find yourself in. All of those things were just in your face every day. Yeah. No respite. And I think that is what for a lot of people really started probably, and I know for me, to bring up some things that were going on deep inside of yeah. me that when you're busy, when you have a meal to go to, a dinner to go to, yeah. drinks, work, here, there, everywhere, as we all were before, you don't have time to think about those things. Yeah. If George Floyd had have happened in a busy life, 
sleepwalk, I don't know if it would have had the same cut through. Mm -hmm. But because there was literally, we'd been wall to wall COVID for weeks, and now this comes, yeah. it took everyone's breath away mm -hmm. and everyone's attention because there was nothing else to look at. Yeah. And so I think grief is like that, that when it really grabs a hold of you, yeah. it takes your focus. It takes your ability to do hard things sometimes mm -hmm. or, or to put up with a lot. Because I think, gosh, 19-year-old Janelle, let's fast forward to the BBC, not having had that awful loss, mm -hmm. I probably would have dealt with all of those things very differently. Mm. But part of your soul's a little bit crushed and a little bit dented. And yeah. so it's very fragile. So it doesn't take much to kind of buff it a little bit because you're so soft and sore. And I think for me, it just has been something that I've learned to live with in certain ways. In some ways, it's made me much stronger compassionate, better. Mm -hmm. When I see friends going through grief, you know, I'm mm. I'm much more able to kind of stick that journey with them yeah. because I know it's not like funeral and done, year and done, we've yeah. got the first anniversary out the way, we've got the first birth. I know it doesn't work mm -hmm. like that. And grief sometimes feels like this, I wrote about it once, like an unwanted visitor that just shows up at your front door. And when it shows up, it shows up. Yeah. And you could be walking down the street. I remember after I lost my daughter and I was full-term pregnant, and this was days before social media, you, you know. And I remember seeing a lady, and she said to me, where's the baby? Uh, it was about, I don't know, coming up to a year after, because I hadn't seen her all that time, and, mm. and I just remember just being so thrown, and then I saw her again, and she asked me again. <laughs> and then she asked me again, but, you know, I think it's just that thing of just being so thrown yeah because I was just coming back from London I was like starting to rebuild my life yeah. and then boom reminder yeah first friend has a baby reminder oh. sisters have kids reminders everyone's having kids reminders and I think you don't know how to deal with it they don't know how to deal with it because we don't have the tools yeah. in society we do not have the tools to deal with grief mm -hmm. especially around baby loss I mm. think it's so hard and upsetting People feel very comfortable saying, oh, you know, my dad died or my mom's died. You know, people feel very uncomfortable around baby loss. So I think, I don't know, maybe I'm rambling, but I, I, I feel that we need to better equip ourselves to yeah. think about grief as a long game mm -hmm. and to think about life going on around it mm -hmm. and giving people the tools to be able to, when those moments hit. Because mm. if someone came and said, you know, I've got depression, everyone would go, oh, okay. Mm -hmm and they say I'm having a bit of a low period, everyone would say, okay. But when someone five years on from someone dying says I'm having a low period, people are like, oh. Because what people are thinking is, you're not over that yet. Yeah. And what that person is thinking is, I don't want to talk about this because people think I should be over it yeah. already. And you get into this cycle where some people are really struggling and it does become a mental health issue mm. because there's no outlet, there's no yeah. pressure valve, there's no space to go without the person feeling that other people are thinking why is she still talking about this? Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm so sorry. And it's I, a part of me that thinks like, maybe we're not supposed to get over it. Do you know what I mean? There's not supposed to be this end point where we're just like, I'm done, I'm fine now. Do you know what I mean? I just think like, the conversations need to be had, but it needs to be had in that environment where the person feels safe to do so as well. Because by talking about it, it's evoking so many emotions that maybe suppressed for such a long time. You need to come out. They, they do need to come out. They need to come out. But I think there's also a thing that people feel sad when they see people sad. 
Yeah. So it's easier if you think, well, they're okay. Yeah. Because then you feel like you're off the hook. I yeah. don't need to check in. I don't need to see if they're all right. Yeah. Like, they're good. They're, I think they're getting on with it, you know. She's she had a bit of a rough time, but yeah. she's all right now. Yeah. And I think people feel like, whew. Yeah. But I think we need to, to rethink that because actually it's not always about that I need everyone to hold me up mm. or that I need people to necessarily do anything. Mm. But I just need them to understand and to listen. that sometimes it's still challenging. Yeah. You don't have yeah. to necessarily do anything about it. Yeah. You have to feel like it's your burden to carry sometimes always. Yeah. But just to understand that this is a challenge. Yeah. You're amazing. Thank you for sharing that so much. So, you know, we hear those questions, what would you tell your younger self? Yeah, we're going to flip it this time. So if little Janelle was sitting next to you now, and it could be any age at all, what would she say to you? I think she would say to me... Just do what you want to do. Why are you not doing it yeah. because of other people? I think that's what she would yeah. probably say to me. Like, if you want to do it, just do it. I yeah. think that is what that younger Janelle would say to me. And I was a child that always asked why. why? She'd probably ask, why are you letting people yeah. get in the way of the things that you enjoy doing yeah. and that you're good at? Yeah, I think you should listen to her. <laughs> Absolutely. And my final question. So this podcast is obviously all about meaningful connections, finding people and listening to their stories of how they face adversities and you know, overcome those obstacles into the next opportunities. So do you have anyone who you think you could connect with me to bring on the podcast? And if so, don't say the name, but could you give us a few reasons as to why you are recommending this person? Oh, I know so many people. <laughs> this feels like, um, oh my gosh, I know so many people. Okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I'm going to say that I think that she is someone who, although she she's exceedingly private so she might not do it but she's exceedingly <laughs> private she's someone who gives a lot to so many people mm -hmm. and I think the adversity that she's overcome in the way that she's done it has a dignity and strength and character that I think is hard to find in a lot of people amazing we'll just try and see if we can make that happen it's been an absolute joy speaking to you today thank you so much for your time and um, I want to get you back on the next podcast as well because we've got so much more to talk about <laughs> we do, so we much do. more thank to talk you. about thank you thank you for having me thank you <laughs>